Hello, Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to another episode of Young, Muslim and Talented. Um, today I'll be hosting, it's Mohammed again and I'm honored to actually uh, introduce, um, many of you might know, I have a twin brother and he's the guest of today's episode. Um, Ahmed, uh, would you like to say hello? Assalamu Alaikum. Um, yeah, I'm Ahmed Randri and obviously I look very similar to Mohammed. Um, I'm his uh, other half, uh, as I say, his uh, elder brother. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to be here today, Mohammed, to talk a little bit about my life. Uh, hopefully you don't know about everything that I'll talk about today. Great. Uh, so welcome on. Today we're actually sitting um, in uh, my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> so today we're just going to hear a little bit about Ahmed's story. And I guess it's quite also quite similar to mine. So that should be quite interesting for our listeners. Um, and hopefully I can ask some good questions. Um, so do you want to tell our listeners a little bit I guess about our upbringing, um, what was it like, uh, what school did we go to, both primary school and secondary mm-hmm. school, um, and, and I guess the big transition for us probably was between yeah. South Africa and the United Kingdom, so maybe just talk through that experience mm-hmm. and how some of the, you know, um, how, you, how you potentially were treated as a South African Muslim living in London mm-hmm. back in 2001, I think it was yeah, just yeah. after 9-11, of course, and, yeah. and, and how that shaped a little bit of our experience. And now mm-hmm. reflecting back on it, how do you think those experiences maybe shaped you into the person that you are yeah. it's a really It's a really good question when you ask about someone about their upbringing, because, I mean, Obviously, for us to be thinking back now, almost almost twenty years uh, mm-hmm. ago. Um, but yeah, as you said, I I think my upbringing in both countries were completely different. Um, but one thing that was consistent was the fact that we had Islam in our life. Um, so that that was really good. So I I I think that's that's a core theme that we kept through through being brought up in South Africa or in in, in London. But um, my experiences of how I was treated as a result of it were entirely different. And I don't know whether you felt the same. So South Africa, I think our lifestyle was very uh, sort of kept in a bubble, so to, so to speak, because our community, Parlock, um, in, in Durban, is, is predominantly Muslim-based. Mm. A um, bit like a suburb. Right? Yeah, a bit mm. of like a suburb. And, and I think the only others we ha- had in our neighborhood were really Hindus um, and a little bit of Christians. But everyone is basically Asian and from India. Um, so I, I for sure didn't realize that there was a bigger world out there where you'd be interacting with other faiths consistently. Uh, even when we went to school, we did interact with a lot of other faiths, but it was very great to school and then you come back home and it's pretty much a Muslim community. Um, as Muhammad to know, our upbringing was very much focused around sports. Um, so my, the thing that I hold most for my childhood is being very competitive with you. Um, in a range of sports, um, be it football every day after madrasa or um, running at school, racing against each other. Um, so I really enjoyed the outdoor aspect of being brought up in South Africa. Um, madrasa and learning was just sort of centered around sports. And just yeah. one on the outdoor aspect, so you know, the one thing obviously is the health benefit and exploring your environment. But the other aspect that we don't talk about much mm-hmm. is actually the social benefits of playing with your friends every single day. Um, I would say we almost, you know, we knew the whole neighborhood, right? So, and uh, when I look back now, reflecting on some of the skills that we may have picked up Mm -hmm. as kids, you know, gelling together maybe groups of friends that 
don't necessarily yeah. like each other or yeah. fighting on the football pitch. Yeah. Yeah. I've almost translated that some to the client's environment and I don't know whether you feel the same. But I, I think um, going up back to the difference where we then had, you, you, that was one of the biggest difference. So you, we spent most of our time outdoors in South Africa mm-hmm. and then coming here, I try to use a lot of those skills that you're talking about with dealing with outside scenarios in school over here. And I was doubt, I, I felt mm-hmm. I was faced with a, a whole new um, outlook on life from people who were brought up here. I think life over here, we went just, we went from a school pretty much, which was based on outdoor activity to coming to a school, which didn't have a playground even outside. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge change for me. And the kids over here had um, a different outlook to what education meant for them and they may have been different because we are in a private school but I very much felt that education was a little bit frowned on when, when we came in trying to be overachievers and, and get the best grades in school it wasn't I, cool it wasn't cool yeah mm-hmm. it, was, it wasn't cool so um, that unfortunately I feel I didn't pick up on quick enough to realize and then suddenly I found myself being in the uncool group uh, of the classroom and, and I didn't like that aspect for the few years that we were uh, uh, in, in sort of the nerds group the geeks group um, and then perhaps the the other aspect of being the only guys in in, in the classroom who were doing hips as well mm-hmm. and by heart in the Quran I think that maybe ostracized us a little bit uh, and pushed us to fringes it made us a bit of a neek right that's what they yeah. used to call it huh? yeah I'm interested to hear so just to explain that we went from a public school to a private school over here with less facilities, but also we came from a sort of second world country, South Africa, where the education system means, you know, would ingrain sort of um, historical um, discrimination against non-whites mm-hmm. um, we had to naturally work a lot harder in a school so you talk about being an overachiever over here um, maybe we can explore how being treated slightly differently over here for trying too hard impact or shaped your experience through primary school mm-hmm. and did it then mean you made different decisions later on when choosing you know, which higher educational facility to go um, through. So I I think um, the pressures in South Africa on my schooling life and to achieve were slightly different to here. I felt when I was in South Africa, I was very much competing against you and competing against my classroom people to get the best grades. Um, When I came here, I finally found myself, actually there were a lot of intelligent people in our class here. Uh, And we I sort of felt that we felt just outside of the group of fully being overachievers in terms of grades in school. But we had a different um, pressure here because our parents were teaching in the same school. So um, I think that was the, the key motivator to get myself through secondary school to get the good grades um, and to unlock the, the so-called freedom in later years. So I do remember distinctly having a conversation with, with our father, um, maybe in year 10 or year 11, saying, look, if you guys get the grades, where you go afterwards is completely up to you. Uh, and that was quite a motivator for me because I knew that meant that if I had got good grades, I'd probably buy myself the freedom for my parents to be responsible for my own future. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our parents are still guiding forces. Um, of course, as you know, that allowed us to, we pretty much had the, um, uh, the uh, 
uh, the grades that they give you before you you go out the uh, forecast grades what do they call yeah, it forecast yeah forecast grade, grades yeah. yeah so so they they, they 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 we had the grades getting to basically Graveney and I think it was um, Coom as well mm-hmm. and one of them was in Tooting where we had been for the last ten years of our life mm-hmm. um, and 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 both you and I knew that going to that sixth form would have been still surrounded by the same friends that we had in, mm-hmm. in school and, and as we went through secondary school life we did build a good group of friends and the other would be pushing ourselves outside of that comfort boundary going to a completely new area and we didn't know anyone who was coming with us but we would have the freedom of being an hour away from our parents or anyone who we knew mm-hmm. and um, interacting with a whole group of people that we never used to I think you, you uh, it's worth commenting on the fact that we're in primary, primary, uh, pri- private school, it was just Asian people, basically, that we were surrounded mm. by. I mean, it was <laughs> diverse in the sense that you had different types of Muslims. So you had the Somali community, the Pakistani community, you know, the North African community. But again, you kind of identify mm. all as one, uh, you know, one Muslim um, community. And the sort of culture and values that it promoted is very similar which means that you think in a very slightly one-dimensional yeah. way. Um, and, and so it's interesting that you mentioned we did have those options to go to um, colleges um, or sixth forms within our area, mm-hmm. but we chose to go a bit more out. And yeah. we had, let's, let's be honest, in more interaction with, with sort of white people and British yeah. people, I think mm-hmm. that opened my eyes to what, you know, actually being British means, Absolutely. whereas, yeah. you know, experience for those first few years was very much tooting centric, which was, and tooting was very Asian um, orientated at that time. And so all of the um, sort of romantic notions of what it means to be British, we only sort of got through the TV. And I only really started experiencing some of that when we moved to Kuhn. Yeah. Having said that, a lot of our friends who did choose to stay within Tutoring community have also sort of made their way um, in life into some similar career paths as well. So how do you feel that maybe our experience of going to Coombe versus staying in 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 our community shaped your sort of career decisions? Mm -hmm. And before we sort of dive into that, um, I guess talking a little bit more about how you maintained or your your, your relationship with your faith evolved during that period. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I think you, you know very well that that was a huge transition period for us. Um, I think if I talk a bit uh, to my personality when I left uh, private Islamic school, to be fairly honest to you, with you, I didn't even know uh, about a single employer out there where I would, could possibly go in my, my career, uh, I had never really interacted with a job other than having part uh, not part-time work, but the work experience that we had in a pharmacy uh, for a couple of weeks. And actually, I had got offered a part-time job after I finished that, and I silly turned that down because I had my hives to look after and my work. So I really deprioritized, you know, making something like the professional aspect of myself. And as a result of that, I went into Kroom lacking a lot of the skills that I should have had from, from secondary school. One, one big thing for me, I mean, you are a lot more of an outgoing person, me being a bit more of an introvert. My communication skills were pretty much zero. I mean, I could barely hold a conversation with someone about something meaningful. Um, 
Now, I'm not saying that's a result of my faith, but I, I think because of the nature of how I was brought up to be, uh, and I'm talking about the, the aspects of Islam that teach you to be respectful to elders, to, to, to you know, think before you speak. Modesty. And, and modest, mm-hmm. self, self-reflection. And I was very much that type of person. But it stopped me to really be outgoing as well. So, um, like, in the interaction with, interacting with a female, for example, I would really actively shy away from having a conversation with a female mm-hmm. at, at, at A-levels. Um, and it was very much through the first year of AS that actually suddenly you find yourself sat down between two uh, females, be they white or, 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 or even Muslims, mm-hmm. and then you're suddenly forced to interact. And we never had that experience mm-hmm. of being in a private school. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, I remember my biology class and being sandwiched between two girls who actually became quite good friends of mine uh, later on in, 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 in my life. Um, that, that was a changing experience for me and that forced me to come out of the box. So that's an aspect which changed my relationship with faith um, without being really in control of it. Mm-hmm. And then there were, of course, there was other aspects where, I mean, in secondary school, we were pretty much uh, had classrooms above a mosque. So pretty, <laughs> whatever salahs were uh, prayed during the day, we went downstairs and mm-hmm. prayed them in Jamaat. Um, which was which was lovely, but it also for me uh, took away the fact that your relationship with Allah should be one that's very personal, and made it a much more mechanic uh, relationship. Something that I I just had to do because I'm in Islamic school. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't. To be fairly honest, once I went into A levels, I just wanted to completely get rid of that aspect of it, and that let me go slightly away from my faith. Um, but but not completely. It was more of a case of I didn't want to do all of the mechanical things that I was doing for the last seven years of my life, and I wanted it to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so going out to a shisha bar in Edgware Road. Um, it was very exciting for us. Very exciting. <laughs> it was exciting times. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, even bunking a class and you know, yeah. it, it just to push the envelope a little bit on things that we hadn't done before. Um, so that's how my relationship really changed. But to say that I don't feel like I strayed away from Islam either. I, I very much held my beliefs and I knew that that made me feel happy inside. So even during my A-levels life, I, I didn't really stray mm-hmm. uh, very far. I think that more happened in university because university is such a different world in its own. And people are really there to more to, to, to change themselves socially, I feel, more than to educate themselves. It's so. to have a good time, basically, you know, um, yeah. find yourself, I think... That university age, you mm. uh, kind of adolescence, you're trying to find who you are, and people tend to do that here by just going crazy. Yeah. Which actually, you could take an opposite tact, and I only, on reflecting back on my university, your own experience doesn't have to be the whole mm-hmm. outgoing finding. It could be reading a variety of different yeah. books, getting involved in a variety of different. Um, topics or positions of responsibility at university that might lead you to finding what you're doing. <laughs> um, so I don't really now, looking back, buy the whole notion of going crazy to find yourself. But I just want to pick up on two things that you mentioned. So you mentioned twice now that you had after school hips classes when everyone else was, um, I, I don't know, I guess going home mm-hmm. or watching yeah. TV or going to Chicken Cottage, I think, in Tooting. <laughs> in Tooting. Um, 
I guess on reflection, do you wish you could have spent that time doing something else? And and then the second part of the question um, is, um, how do you feel you would have changed? I know it's hard to kind of guess maybe mm-hmm. your, your your future, but how, how do you feel you would have changed as a person if you were to have that time to have done whatever else you think you should have been doing? Yeah. Um... I, it's, it is a really good question and it's always easy to think about it retrospectively. So if I had to answer the question, knowing the things that I know right now, I would say um, the fact that I wasn't involved in those after-school activities was to the benefit of myself. And the reason mainly is because I felt that I would have very much gone down the route of tooting at, in those times in the 2000s was very much like a Asian... Uh, gang culture uh, <laughs> hanging around yeah. tooting so everything was about oh I know these people I can go boxing and you know I, I'm street smart um, and, and you probably end off every sentence with brav or something like that so um, the fact that it didn't allow me to stray into that element of, of speaking I guess we also have that we had a father which, who was an English teacher and every time we'd say some word that sounded ridiculous he'd ruin us in a bit um, so I think that aspect of me allowed me to switch to the more British output, to be more relatable to people without having the the need to change the way I spoke, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so retrospectively, for sure, I think it was better. But in the time, if you had asked me, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the most exciting thing that we used to do is go and pick up a couple of wings from Dallas chicken shop yeah. after, uh, between our school mm-hmm. to Madrasa, and that was probably the most exciting thing that happened for us. I watch a lot of anime at night, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which was fun. So moving a bit forward then, I guess, into your university sort of Mm -hmm. life and experience, maybe you can just give a synopsis of um, how it went for you. And something interesting that, you know, I know, but the listeners probably don't know is that you worked seven days a week during that period. Yeah. I mean, how, why, and, and on reflection, do you, how, how, what did you take away from that type of experience? Do you think it's made you a harder worker now? Um, I, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, to be honest with you, I think my, my reason for working at that time was probably a very personal one. I needed to distract myself from a lot of uh, personal things that were happening during that period. Um, but university itself, for the first two years, I think I still was very much the same person that I was in A-levels, um, whereas you were interacting a lot more with um, societies and things like that. So I, I would definitely encourage people in university to get involved in extracurricular. And when I help people get jobs now, I tell them, look, what can you tell me that you have outside of your mm-hmm. academic life? That That's what really matters. I think that's really important for people to pick up as early as they can in university life. Now, having said that, I certainly didn't. So I felt also going into my placement year, and for those who don't or have access to a placement year, it's a really good idea to, to do that because it really builds you professionally. But as you know, because of your extracurricular activities, going into that year, you were able to get a job pretty quickly at IBM. Mm-hmm. And how I struggled was... Mm-hmm. as a result of me not getting involved as, uh, in as much extracurricular activities. The one thing I did have is, um, and this, <laughs> this experience always uh, relates to me, Mohammed was quite outgoing, so um, we were in a classroom where we were nominating an academic rep, uh, and uh, he picked up his hand and then pushed me forward, 
um, to go and give a speech as to why I wanted to be an academic rep for the classroom. And I was against two or three people who were really seriously prepared with speeches and one guy yeah. even with a, a microphone. Yeah. Shout out to Yang. Yeah. <laughs> who became our very good friend, by the way. <laughs> Um, but it was moments like that that sometimes define the person that you are because I suddenly found myself, actually, I'm quite capable to deal with the situation on the spot. So sometimes you underestimate yourself until you find yourself in that position. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I was fortunate enough to get that position, which mm -hmm. was pretty much the only thing other than my education on my CV at that time. So when I applied for a part-time job um, and a placement job, um, one of the key things I could talk about was that experiences and I, I gave people tours of university as a result and yeah, I remember that. <laughs> became a school academic rep so went to mm. schools and, and gave them insight as well so um, the key message I would say through university what I learned is it's not what you learn in the classrooms it's as much as what you learn outside of the classroom as well unless of course you're in a very specialized uh, education course like you becoming a doctor or a dentist but even then so mm -hmm. experience, experience is important yeah I mean yeah. Otherwise, you're kind of just dumped into the real world at yeah. the end of your university experience. And you haven't, again, like we said in school, you don't, you don't have those interactions with, mm -hmm. you know, people actually doing mm -hmm. the work that you want to do in your future. Yeah. And I think I learned a lot from extracurricular activities at university, definitely. Mm -hmm. and, and the placement year, which is basically working for a company for one year yeah. um, and it was nice to have that extra money as yeah. well <laughs> exactly so about to say that actually the one thing i didn't mention so obviously the motivations for doing those seven days of work of week uh, of work a week mm -hmm. was um uh, my parents were very hard workers they often they almost work seven days a week they did work seven yeah, days a week for mm -hmm. a few years in fact they did um tuition on the weekends and madrasa and school during the weekday so my parents were a good example of working really really hard um, but I would like to tell you that money wasn't the driving factor because um, going into I don't know, even even A levels we didn't really ha like we were very tight on pocket money uh, most mm -hmm. weeks and that taught me a lot about controlling my money and how much I spent. But in university, I saw all of these people who had like gap years or like suddenly yeah. were traveling at every university break to go like skiing and stuff like that, and being brought up in a, um, a middle class working environment. I wanted a little bit of that, so um, yeah, so I ended up um, keeping my part-time job that I had got in my second year of university, and I was fortunate, fortunate enough to get a placement as well, at very last minute, and I decided, well, you know, let's just keep that going on, on as well, and it did turn out to my benefit, I ended up saving a lot of money over that year, um, and then in my final year of university, I went on, I think maybe three or four different trips. We went to Brazil, um, I went to New York, um, went to South Africa that year, and mm -hmm. Dubai. Um, so that was a really great year. And then, of course, graduating as well. So uh, you work hard and it, it, the play becomes better, in my yeah. opinion, but it's getting the work hard. And it feels a lot more uh, nicer to do those things when you're kind of funding it yourself and you know, you know how hard you've worked. You, you almost appreciate um, spending a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so fast forward to, um, you know, finding a job, finding the right job. You talked a little bit about money uh, being a bit of a motivator in your past, picking a part-time job. Um, was that the same for finding your graduate job? Um, also tell our viewers about your little 
um, journey through the professional world, how you started yeah. mm-hmm. off where you did and, and where you've um, ended up now? Um, well, it's a, it is a really good question. Um, like, uh, unfortunately, when I started my career, it, and that was a placement year, I didn't really end up in a company that I wanted to be in. Um, so I ended up in a company called Atos Business Consulting, which effectively was a, um, an ex-arm of KPMG Consulting, which had been acquired by an IT giant. Um, now, Atos was just basically filled with close to retirement uh, partners or ex-directors who had left all of the big four, so PwC, EY, um, KPMG and Deloitte. Um, so I suddenly found myself being the youngest person in the company on their first round of ever doing a placement scheme. Um, and I just had one other placement student with me, a really great guy, but this guy was super intelligent and he ended up in City in his later years. So suddenly I found myself, um, you know, first time they're running a placement uh, scheme, all eyes are on you, very senior people as well. Um, and I'm against one other person who is way more qualified than I am to be in this position. I think he was, he had already graduated at the time, I may be incorrect, but I think he had graduated and was doing the placement year afterwards, so that was available as well. I think my time at Atos taught me one thing, um, and I'm sure you can relate to it, is in business specifically, and I guess in other careers as well, people are probably the biggest element of driving your success. Um, and when I say people, uh, I mean confidence in yourself primarily, but then accessing the right people to make you mm-hmm. succeed in that environment. And although Atos was not the place that I wanted to be, um, it gave me access to very, very knowledgeable people at the beginning of my career. So at the end of my placement here, um, we had this thing, this one event where they were um, giving out employee awards for the year. And honestly, I ha- at that point, I was just more grateful that I made it through the year working seven days a week and like literally being exhausted. Um, so I turned up to this event not expecting anything. Um, and of course, it was only two of us. Um, the only consulting job externally that I had been on was uh, Pearson's Education. Uh, and very, very much about what we were talking about earlier. I was doing video editing, basically, and... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fiddling around with audios. Basically, they were choosing whether they wanted Microsoft uh, 365 or Google Docs as their communication system. And we were creating these videos to to present to uh, the executive committees all across the world, these platforms. So that's all I had done. Um, And for the rest of the year, so that was one job for maybe three weeks. For the rest of the year, I was on a sales pipeline team where we were just churning out bids, like paperwork, uh, trying to get business in. Now, the reason why I raised this is the people point that I talked about. I didn't realize that the person I had been working, uh, working for, she was a really tough person to work for. <laughs> uh, I'm talking really tough. Like, the type of person, if she's typing an email and you come up to a computer, she would just hold her hand out to you like this, yeah, and make you wait there for like five to six minutes. <laughs> so people in the company really hated her, and especially my graduate intake they, they found her a very difficult person to work with but as you probably know I'm an extremely patient person um so and I was just so tired from my work as well I was just I'm just going to get on with it just mm-hmm. do it um 
Turns out she had extreme pull in the department. So to, a week earlier to these awards, she went up to the CEO and said, this guy, Ahmed, is brilliant. I want you to give him the award for placement student. So I turned up to this, this ceremony not having a clue and they ended up giving me an award for being the best newcomer to Atos Business Consulting. And everyone suddenly turned to me and were like, wow, yeah. <laughs> how, how have you done it? And the only way I did that was mm. being patient with someone who was really important. So understanding who, what people are, understanding their, their qualities and personal, uh, personalities is very, very key to, to, to basically build your trajectory in any company, I think. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to gloss over the other part of it because it's not very interesting. Mm. But I, of course, I then, um, at the end of Atos, having talked to all of those partners, they, um, they suggested that I go and get myself a qualification because if I want to return to consulting, then I've built a strong base of an expertise it's like a doctor, basically. Like, you know, a doctor specializes in either nose, ears, hands, or legs. So if, you have, if you're a specialist in one of those things, you obviously people are going to pay you more to do it. Um, so having used their advice, I only applied to one other company uh, who I really wanted to work for, and that's because I thought their culture fit me. I read a lot about their culture. Um, and I applied to Deloitte, and of course I, I got the offer to return to Deloitte. But I applied to Deloitte Consulting to do the ACA, um, they filled up all of their spaces, probably to Oxbridge candidates. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I ended up going to audit insurance for, for those four years of my life. I didn't realize that you made that choice because you felt that you needed a professional qualification. Because um, for me, it was very much having to do that because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I thought just by, you know, putting myself to, to three or four, four years of, you know, doing a chartered accountancy um, qualification would set me up to find whatever that was. So actually, what I wanted to ask you was making that decision, mm -hmm. joining Deloitte. I mean, for you, you obviously, I don't do you feel it was the right decision or do you feel that you should have stayed maybe within Atos Consulting? Um, mm -hmm. And how does, how did that now help you to do what you do? Today, uh, I mean, I know you, you often talk about like seven days work a week mm. and stuff like that. I think one element of working hard mm. is putting yourself in scenarios that are new to you. Um, if you don't push yourself to be uncomfortable, then we just sit in this bubble of comfort for the rest of our life and don't realize that we're not learning through our experiences. Mm -hmm. So the biggest driver of, of, of that decision because honestly, I loved Atos, although I didn't choose them as a company. I ended up being there and I really loved my year. I had a great time. I learned a lot. Um, and people were so nice to me. They even, as you know, they even sponsored my last year of university. They gave me like yeah. five grand over the year for books, which are of course used on books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so the main driving force was there was two distinct options that I had to look at. I knew I wanted a professional qualification by that stage because everyone I had talked to told me I needed one. It was either stay at Atos and do a SEMA um, or go to a big four company and get like an ACA. Uh, so that was the biggest decision I had to make. And if, you, if anyone Googles that, <laughs> you know that there's conflicting views as to which is better. There is no one that is better. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I chose just getting a bigger brand on my CV mm -hmm. um, because 
everyone I interacted with at Atos had come from the Big Four. Yeah. So surely there must be something good at the Big Four uh, for these people to be holding high management positions in Atos. Um, looking back at it, would I have changed the decision? Um, to be fairly honest with you, Deloitte, in terms of work-wise, what I was doing on a day-to-day basis, was probably the worst work I've done in my life. Like, audit, if anyone knows what audit is, um, it's not a terribly, terribly exciting job to do. It's pretty much tick-boxing, it's a tick-box exercises. When people say they give you a box of invoices and you tick them through to see whether they're correct, that very much was what was audit for me. Now, I chose to be on a US GAP client, um, which again seemed to have been choosing the harder route for a lot of what people did. Um, and just for the listeners, US GAAP is basically an accounting regulation in, in the US and post the financial crisis, um, the US obviously implemented a lot more stringent regulations, which meant that you know, holding companies accountable to that was a lot more of a difficult job. Yeah. Pretty much, sorry, I, I went straight into the audit chat there without yeah. knowing it. So um, I mean, very much became an audit person for five, four or five years. Um, and you know how, how difficult that was for me. I mean, it was basically leaving home at 5.30 a.m. on a Monday, a winter Monday morning uh, and going away from home for, for, for two to three months um, or on a weekly basis and coming home on Fridays. At least I got to come home on Fridays, to be fair, and seeing my friends and being completely shattered um, from working, I don't know, a 60, 70-hour week uh, where I got like maybe four or five hours sleep in a hotel, and trust me, staying in hotels is not as fun as it yeah, sounds. the first few times, it doesn't get that fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, when all you're doing is going to an office and then coming back to the hotel, sleeping and repeating, it just sucks away uh, uh, years of your life. Um, having said that, I looked at it with the mindset of the same seven days of work that I did. If I just do the hard work, I can clearly see that this is going to make me climb up a, real, a little quicker than everyone else. Um, so lo and behold, after three years of doing that, I pretty much made every promotional jump in Deloitte. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, every year at every social that I went to with people, people would come up to me and pity me, like all, honestly would pity me. Like, oh, Ahmed, how, will, how is uh, Willis going? Um, how are you feeling? Have you got much sleep? Um, because people knew it was such a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we went, all went for the manager promotion and there was like 10 or 12 people going for three spots to get promoted after four years of being at Deloitte, that was the only thing that pretty much just got me the manager promotion while people even looking. Mm. Um, and also, not, not the fact to say that if you just do hard work, it gets you places, um, because you also have to learn from that hard work. So the things about being on worse was, I found myself maybe six to seven months ahead of people in terms of on-the-job skills. So like managing an associate. If I wasn't able to manage an associate, neither of us would get the work done. Neither would the manager get the work done. So you suddenly have to take on more responsibility above your pay grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that has allowed me to really uh, climb up quickly through corporate, corporate ladders um, because I've just basically seen myself as if you want that job, go and do it for six months whilst you're still getting paid on your old job. If you're unable to do the job ahead of you on your own pay grade, then no one is going to pay you more money to do it. 
So, mm-hmm. so uh, that's uh, that's allowed me to climb up quite a bit. So obviously, once I made manager in Deloitte, I got across, I got, I got to the cross bridges. Choose to do audit or do something you actually like. And as you know, I did consulting earlier in my life, so I wanted to go back to consulting. I tried that at Deloitte for a little while. I didn't like it that much, and then that was my decision to leave. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so. It feels like you made a decision to do something necessary, but hard, but difficult. Um, not maybe something that you genuinely loved doing, but you felt that it um, was a step that you needed to take in order to get to the place mm-hmm. that you want to be. And so I, I know you always talk to me about maybe doing something that you enjoy and how that then reflects in the output of your work. Mm-hmm. But it feels almost that you done slightly the opposite thing maybe in, in your life, but I don't put word in your, words in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you think that's the right route to get to consulting or should you just bang on a door as hard as you can until, you know, you get directly into the, the job role that you think is right mm-hmm. for you? Yeah. Look, um, in competitive environments, and you and I know how hard it is to compete in, in environments where you a at a disadvantage, perhaps because I would say the color of your skin with all of the, the whole Black Lives Matter thing happening today, I would say more of the person that you are, the cultural background that you have. Sometimes it makes it harder to be competitive in an environment mm-hmm. because you lack the knowledge that others do. Yeah. I, I take it for example, like uh, someone going through a Catholic school, a British Catholic school over here, perhaps they went through at school time in secondary school life, how to prepare for job interviews, whereas we didn't even touch that in, in primary yeah. school. So mm-hmm. that puts you at a competitive, uh, st- like two or three steps behind someone else. It's an invisible barrier. Yeah. Mm. And now, I would love to say that it's easy then to just go straight for and bang at the door of, of what you want to do and you're passionate about and you love, but the reality is slightly different from it because you just may lack the skills right now to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been quite a lot better than this in life, but it does require charting out where you want to be. Um, so if you, for example, want to work for Deloitte in consulting, uh, I can tell you, you you would need to apply very early. You'd need to be a very strong candidate in terms of extracurricular activities, a, pretty much A grades across the board. Regardless of what they say around not looking for grades and stuff like that, that's the type of quality that are coming through the door. If you're lucky enough to get an interview, then of course you can demonstrate the difference personality-wise you are. But how many people make it to that step? It's small, small, small number. I, I think... The Deloitte success rates of interviewees were actually harder than Harvard in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And they were very happy to actually tout those figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reality of getting something that you want, as hard as it is to stomach, is sometimes unlikely. Mm-hmm. So I took that on board very early on to say, okay, I may be doing something that I, I won't like, and eventually learn to hate. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Yeah. What you're trying to say is that, uh, you know, it's unique to someone's own upbringing yeah. and the, the path that they might have to take mm-hmm. is different from, um, you know, someone who might have all the opportunities available to them yeah. because they've been brought up, mm-hmm. um, you know, either through a private school or had opportunities that, you know, we might not have had growing up. Yeah. So... Sorry, I know we are, we're kind of running 
towards the end of our podcast here, but I also wanted to ask you, now I know we haven't mentioned this, but you've, throughout your professional career at least, been working in the insurance industry. And, you know, as you know, people in our community, you know, there are a lot of Muslims who would ask you, how do you reconcile being a Muslim and working in the insurance industry? And I guess I just wanted to, for our younger Muslims who might have not thought of insurance as a career prospect, how do you reconcile those being, being a Muslim and working in that industry? Um, I mean, of course, insurance is something people look at and, you know, our life is in our control and stuff like that. And at the end of the day is, as I said, I came into the industry with a skill and with a job to do. So whether I'm doing that in insurance or whether I'm doing that in real estate or, you know, retail, for me, I'm there to financially control and plan for a company. So... Um, that's the aspect that I look at in terms of frame of mind for the job that I'm going in to do. Um, so that keeps me on, on the side of actually, you know, this is reasonable. In terms of the insurance industry itself, um, it's like no other industry, to be honest with you. We just sell a product to people who want it. If you want to buy a product from us, no one's holding a gun to your head to tell you to buy insurance. Um, you purchase it because you want it. And specifically with the company that we and we don't really do gen like normal general insurance. So I work with a company called Hiscox and um, we do specialist general insurance, um, things like um, fine art cover, insurance jewelry. Um, where I specifically work in is uh, more around um, special, special risks. So that covers things like kidnap and ransom insurance. Um, also, as I mentioned, fine art and car uh, jewelry and then security incidents response as well. Um, so I really like insurance because I'm working in a specialist area of it and I can see the need for those clients to purchase specific cover like that. So I think you need to find something interesting in the sector that you work in. But what I really enjoy is financial planning and financial change and control. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing that at Hiscox. So um, uh, that's the aspect of my job that day to day I interact with the most. Um, the insurance aspect of it is just a, a byproduct, really. And so just lastly, your actual role, financial planning, what does that involve and why do you find it exciting and, and interesting and why should others potentially think of that as a, um, a career? Yeah. Uh, so as I said, I started off in consulting uh, after I, get, I got my ACA um, and I was very much had the mindset that I want to now actually leave professional services I didn't want to be selling my services anymore. I wanted to be part of a company where they were selling a product and I was helping them succeed in selling that product. Um, so I joined on a finance transformation program and from them, I, then I got promoted a couple of months back to head of financial planning and analysis and finance change for special risk. So on a day-to-day, -day, that means I'm very much controlling the budget for the company, for, for our business unit rather. Uh, and ensuring that we're profitable uh, quarter to quarter, month to month, year to year. Um, and obviously in this time where we have COVID running around, it's, an, it's a particularly interesting time to be in um, because you don't know how revenue is going to be impacted or you don't know how your expenses are going to be impacted by the current world events. Um, so yeah, just to explain what budgeting is, you almost, 
trying to chart the course of a business or plan what's going to happen in you know the next month or the next six months or the next 12 months uh, even two to three years yeah three yeah, years. yeah yeah, yeah. So it's, it's um we look three years ahead basically mm. yeah and just like we talked about finding the right career businesses need to have a sort of a plan in place yeah. to help them to try and achieve those objectives mm-hmm. well great thanks for giving us a lot of your time today to speak to us i mean what we like to do at the end of our podcast is have a little bit of a fun round and the idea is just to play a little bit of a, a, a word association game. Mm-hmm. Um, that means I'll just fire some words at you and then you just tell me the first word that comes to your mind uh, with the idea being that our listeners can get a bit more of a feel of your personality. Okay. Okay, so the words um, that we have for you today are, the first one is weekend. <laughs> Baby, <laughs> yeah. yeah. As uh, I don't know if many of you would know, but Ahmed has had his uh, first child uh, a year ago now, he's just turning one, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, Yahya is uh, Yahya and, and Zabe are on my weekend, I get to enjoy time with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we, we play tennis as well. I should have said that, yeah. but the, the first primary is time with my baby, yeah. Um, as much uh, now with COVID and working at home, we do get time together, but it's yeah. still the weekend that you just get to chill out, relax, interact with him, and I really enjoy that part. It's a little bundle of joy, isn't yes. it? Yeah. <laughs> and um, the second word is bicycles. Oh, yeah, BMX. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we used to, uh, we spent outdoor lives in South Africa, so riding our BMXs through uh, long grass, through a jungle, yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes even pedaling as fast as we can away from really vicious dogs running after you to protect their land. Yeah, that's what the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about bicycles. Okay. Natural disasters? Oh, I hope it doesn't affect my profitability this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you'd go with uh, insurance on that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, that's, that's the cost of insurance is like, as much as you as much as you are personable, and that is the first thing we as Hiscox employees are told to think about, it's people of profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, uh, like, obviously we eyes peeled at the news when it's hurricane season in in America, but mm-hmm. um, that's the first thing that pops to my head. Yeah. Do you use the names of uh, yeah, the hurricane? Yes, yes. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> like, uh, and it's communicated out as well, but we obviously have staff in those locations as well like when uh, i can't remember which which was a storm that hit bermuda um mm-hmm. last year in fact um, we had all of our staff who had to leave the offices mm-hmm. so i mean it's very personal events and safety and people's security always comes mm-hmm. before profitability but the reason why i say profitability is because ultimately our existence as an insurance company is quite dependent on mm-hmm. that um having said that over the last couple of years We've diversified ourselves quite a bit now to also go into small businesses and insure them. So um, to take away a little bit of the risk of just being completely dependent on a huge storm um, impacting your company's success. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Um, easy. Hard. System. Oh, the last three years of my life. Um, we're implementing Oracle in Hiscox, so system-wise, that's the first thing that comes to my head. To my head. Um, it was really successful. Uh, we're coming to close in, in August, so I, I think it was a really successful program. 
um, led up by some really strong people. And I think I learned as much, if not more, mm-hmm. in the last two years that I've been doing this project than I, I did at, at Deloitte. So mm-hmm. um, I feel that, um, yeah, if people are ever debating themselves, throwing themselves into a new environment or new scenario, mm-hmm. go for it because you never know what it's like until you do it. Yeah. For those who don't know, what is Oracle? Uh, Oracle is a <laughs> financial uh, reporting and analysis system. So thankfully, implementing it means my life is going to be a lot more easier using it in the years to come. Um, but yeah, what people don't really realize that in the insurance industry, a lot of things are quite old because it's got such an old sector. So things like financial reporting is still done in Microsoft Excel. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of insurance companies are now being forced to move into new technology with all of the wearable technology coming into play as well. So how do you really analyze data correctly if you have all of these tons of data coming in, but your system is still manually on Excel? So we need systems to interact with that, carve up our data and present it in, in a way that tells management uh, what they need to know. Mm-hmm. And last question, or last word actually, um, baby? <laughs> baby, uh, I, I, I don't know. If you say baby to me right now, I think I'll probably miss him. Yeah, yeah. miss him. Because every time I think baby, immediately my baby's uh, face pops up in my head. Give you back. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and cuddles. Yeah, I know. Like he's in a very cuddly mood today. Um, and the weekend is my turn to, to feed him. So I've already been up like from 7 30 um, this morning. Yeah, and one thing about babies is that you can't control when they wake and sleep as much as you try to build them into a routine and so freedom of sleeping uh, only exists until you have a baby and then you re-exist for me until he grows uh, when he grows up so um yeah great 18 years and counting (laughs) (laughs) i will i will look forward to that um Thank you again so much for taking your time to speak to us. That's the end of this podcast. If you've liked it, make sure that you um, comment, subscribe and share with your friends. Um, thanks, Ahmed, for speaking to us and we will see you on the next podcast. It's been a pleasure. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.